Our scripture this morning is from Psalm 42 and 43. In the Blue Pew Bible, that's on page 469 if you want to follow along. Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together as we, uh, as we come to these psalms, which is really just one psalm divided up into two. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that uh, you would be with us, that you would attend your word and that you would send your spirit. What we need most of all now is to hear from you, to hear these uh, honest words of pain and sorrow and to know the way in which you, in and through Jesus and by the spirit, meet us in the midst of that. We pray that we would hope in you this morning. We pray that you would bring hope, that you would send your light and your truth now that you would lead us into your presence and that we would come away changed because of your great love for us and because of your covenantal commitment to us. And we pray this all for your glory and for our good as your people. Amen. Um, some of you will remember that uh, Mother Teresa died in 1997, but then in 2007, her personal letters were published. These were letters that she had written to her spiritual director. And what was incredible about this is that they revealed a side to her that most didn't ever really know. 
Uh, within these letters, they, they were these very personal and revealing accounts of these things that she struggled with in immense ways. And what came to light through this, I'm guessing some of you remember this, is that it showed that she suffered from this sense of real darkness and depression to the point that some people thought that she was actually clinically depressed. And so she, she poured herself out in these letters and it showed how she had significant doubts about God's presence with her. I want you to listen to the way she describes this. She says, There is such terrible darkness within me, as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. In my heart there is no faith, no love, no trust. There is so much pain. The pain of longing. The pain of not being wanted. I want God with all the powers of my soul. And yet there between us, there is terrible separation. She talks about in the midst of this still struggling to even pray with this darkness so present upon her. And she says this, I want to speak, yet nothing comes. I find no words to express the depths of the darkness. There is such a deep loneliness in my heart that I cannot express it. I don't know how that strikes you, uh, but as you can imagine, when this came out, and again, some of you will remember this in 2007, some in the news media took this and ran with it and talked about how Mother Teresa was really a fake. She didn't really have genuine faith in God. She lived a life of hypocrisy and just having to put forward this image of a saintly woman who has no real belief in God. I mean, Christopher Hitchens wrote a response about this to that effect. But for a lot of people, myself included, and I hope this is the case for you as well, when you hear struggles like that, that becomes something that is incredibly encouraging to you. Not encouraging because that's your own experience and you enjoy that experience, but encouraging because you know exactly what this sort of desperation and darkness feels like. These are doubts, this is despair coming from somebody who nobody is going to question as one of the most devout women who has ever lived. And yet she struggled in this way, in a very real way. And I don't know how you think about life with God and what your expectations are on that front. I don't want to assume that everybody here is a Christian. But I would guess that we would probably have a little bit of hesitancy to talk about our life with God in terms of deep despair, in terms of a terrible separation or a deep loneliness. We don't talk that way. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think in some ways we just think that doesn't feel right. Or maybe that might reveal some weak faith that we have. Or that it's okay to feel that way, but don't actually say that. Don't talk that way. And, and that's the way a lot of churches, I think, handle that. Uh, there was this prominent pastor, even this last week, this is a nice little send from God and His providence, the week before a sermon like this, this pastor tweeted this, Negative thoughts come to every person. The key is, don't verbalize them. Be positive or be quiet. Now, as we turn to this psalm this morning and look at this, you might notice that it does the exact opposite of what this pastor says to do. But I think this is a great example of why we might be uncomfortable with what we read about, with this raw honesty that the Bible gives us. 
And if you're here exploring Christianity, I want you to recognize that I think what's one of the most compelling parts of the Bible, and it's that the God of the Bible is not one who asks you to pretend like you're not hurting. The God of the Bible is one who shows us, not only is He okay with this, He gives us an example of what it looks like to be real and to be raw before God. That's what the Bible has within it. This is the inspired, inerrant Word of God for us. He gives us this example to see what it looks like to struggle deeply. And this psalmist and what he's writing gives us, I think, just this vivid picture of what it looks like to long for God's presence and yet to be mired in this deep sense of His absence from us. And of course... Plenty of us feel this way this morning. Maybe not this intensely, but we feel this way this morning. I think you think about unanswered prayer as an example. The many times you've called out to God, cried out to Him for something. The times that you've desired so badly to have a spouse and be married, and yet you continue on lonely. The many times that you have this financial strain pressing down upon you in your life where your job is not paying you what you need to take care of your family. And you've been faithful to do good work. And yet that job doesn't come. God feels absent. And if that's you this morning, this psalm has something for you. But I want to say something to those of you who are not feeling that way this morning. This psalm has something for you too. Because reality says that if you're not experiencing it now, you have or you will experience it. And in the immediate, the people around you, family, friends, neighbors, are experiencing this absence. So this this psalm has something for all of us this morning. What does this say to us in the midst of that despair and that depression that we face? Here's what I think it says to us says that Jesus draws near to us in the midst of our despair by reminding us of our salvation in and through worship. Jesus draws near to us. He comes to us. And He reminds us of our salvation. And that's what we'll see this morning. Before we jump in, I want to give a word of caution. I I struggle with this this week. There's a temptation to, to come to this psalm and pour out our soul and expect that the end result is going to be a change in circumstance and a real joy. And that's not how this psalm ends. This psalm ends hopefully, but it doesn't tie up all the loose ends. I was thinking, uh, this isn't like a Hallmark Christmas movie, okay? Where there's some sort of real conflict, real pain, real sorrow that enters in, and then everything is tied up very neatly at the end. It doesn't end that way. It does, however, end with hope. But I think this makes this psalm that much more powerful for us because it's real. Our circumstances might not change, but what this talks about is what it looks like for God to draw near to us, to be with us as that uh, troubling circumstance continues as we deal with these parts of life that we just weren't, wish weren't so. So it doesn't promise resolution to all things. But God gives us hope here. I want to look at these three, thi- these three themes that I've pulled out from this psalm. These are listed for you in the bulletin if you're a note taker. 
First is this, we must recognize that our most basic longing is for God. Take a look back at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The way that this psalmist describes this desire for God can only be put in terms of this, of this thirst that has to be satisfied. It's a thirst that is likened to a deer who must go to this water in order to survive and have life. He pants for this God to be with him. There's an ache and there's a longing about it. And what's really interesting is that if you look at verse 4, the psalmist has experienced the satisfaction of this longing before. He has felt God's presence before. And it's been in the context of worship. He says, "...how I would go with the throng." and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And this is where, if you've got your Bible open, glance back to the heading of this psalm, the byline, the author of it. It says this is by and for the sons of Korah. Uh, The sons of Korah would have been the Levitical musicians in the temple. So these guys would have been the ones who would lead God's people to the temple for worship. So he's experienced this sort of presence with God in the context of worship before. And right now, we'll talk about these circumstances. Right now, for a number of circumstances, he cannot worship at the temple. And because of that, his soul is cast down and he feels absent from God. He feels separated from God. But in the midst of that, he recognizes that his ultimate need, what he needs more than anything else is God Himself. And this is what's true for us as well. Again, if you're exploring Christianity, I want you to hear this. The claim of the Bible is that every human being is created with a longing for God that can only ever be fully satisfied by God Himself. Some of you will be familiar with Augustine's great quote from his confessions. He says, You have made us for Yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is a fundamental statement that is true of every single person that has ever or will ever live. We have a fundamental longing for God. Why is that important in the midst of darkness or despair or depression? Because our temptation in that moment when you face darkness is to think that if I could just be married, if I could just have that job, If I could just be free of this addiction that I have now, if my marriage just wouldn't feel so hopeless, then I would be happy, these circumstances would be alleviated, and I would no longer be despairing. That's what we think in the moment. If I could just fix and alleviate what's difficult about this, then everything's going to be okay. And the problem is that the psalm says that is misguided. Um, For those of you who were part of our study of John this fall... Jesus has words to say about this in John 4. He's at the well with the Samaritan woman. And this woman is one who, who is of mixed ethnic descent and would have been written off as unclean by the Jewish people. She was full of shame because she had been married multiple times and was living with a man who wasn't her husband at that time. And so she goes to the well in the middle of the day in order to be publicly, in order to not be publicly shamed by others. And in this context, Jesus meets her and they start talking about water and it takes on this metaphorical significance about what is ultimately going to satisfy us. And here's what Jesus says. 
He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. I have a a very dear friend who wrestles deeply with same-sex attraction. He doesn't remember a time in his life when he was not attracted to men. Uh, He wishes this circumstance was very different. Uh, And this battle has been a constant battle for him for the whole of his life. And in the midst of this, there is this almost overwhelming temptation to stop fighting, to give in, and to believe that if I just give myself to this relationship, then everything is actually going to feel better. All he has, this is where I've learned so much about the gospel from him, all he has is to cling to this truth that God and God alone can ultimately satisfy him. Even in the midst of what feels like such darkness and despair and deep, deep loneliness, all he can do is cling to God. That's what the psalmist is saying. That the longing that you and I have is for God Himself, and it can only ultimately be satisfied for Him. Here's a question for you to take and to ask yourself in the midst of your darkness. To where or to whom am I turning for this darkness to be alleviated? Where do you turn? Is it, that to, is it to more money? Is it to think that if I could just be successful, if I had a better marriage, then I'd be okay? According to this psalm, that's like drinking salt water. Salt water that tastes so good initially but obviously doesn't quench your thirst and in the end makes you thirstier and leaves you dissatisfied. What this psalm says is that God alone can meet that longing. This is what the psalmist is telling us. So he recognizes that his ultimate longing is for God. But here's the tough part, and this might be what you're thinking right now. God is still distant. He's absent from me. And so what does he do? He cries out in the absence of God. And this is what we're called to as well. So number two, we must cry out in the absence of God. Look first at why God is distant from him. You see this in verse 6. There's this statement here where he's he's in the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. That's not as important except for the fact that he's saying that he is not in the land of Israel anymore. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because he's separated from the temple. Okay, you might ask also, why is that a big deal, right? We didn't come to church last Sunday because of all of the snow and ice. Is that a big deal? Kind of. Not like this, though. Why? Because the temple is this unique place where God has said, I will dwell with you in a special way there. It's the place where some would say, heaven and earth intersect. God has said, I'm going to be present with you throughout the whole of the world. I'm omnipresent in that way. But I'm going to be specially present with you in a gracious way here at the temple. And the problem for the psalmist now is that he's separated from God. So to be separated from the temple is to be separated from God. And so a lot of scholars think that this psalm was actually written in exile. Israel had been pulled out of the land, away from the temple, and so they're now in Babylon. They can't experience the presence of God as they had hoped. And I think that's also the reason that there's all this language of being oppressed by enemies. 
He could have very easily been looking around at those who had taken them into exile and been oppressed by them. And so what the psalmist knows is that he must have God's presence, but he can't be in God's presence. God still seems absent from him. Notice how he describes what this feels like. The feeling of the absence of God. Look at verse 3. God's absence feels like intense weeping. He says, My tears have been my food day and night. This is a picture of someone who's so overwhelmed with grief and pain that he can't even eat. He has no appetite. Verses 5 and 6, it feels like depression. Why are you cast down? You could translate that. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He repeats that two more times in this refrain. And then verse 6, my soul is cast down. That could be translated, I am depressed. I am depressed. Verse 7, he is overwhelmed by God. Kind of odd language here. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This is a picture of being overwhelmed by what God is doing in your life. These same words were taken on the lips of Jonah. He's in in the belly of the fish, crying out to God. He's overwhelmed by him, and that's what this feels like. Finally, he feels forgotten by God. See this in verse 3 and verse 10, and you notice it starts with the shouts from enemies. This is, these are questions coming from these people around him, saying, where's your God? Where is your God? You're so, you're so cast down this, where, where is your God? But if you notice, it moves from this question that's outside coming to him, and it becomes something that he himself starts to struggle with and believe. And I think you see this in 43 verse 2. Why have you rejected me? God, why have you rejected me? Have you felt that way? That God has rejected you? What you have is this picture of a person who is just clinging to his faith in God by his fingertips. He's barely hanging on. But what might be most important about this whole psalm is how he handles this feeling of God's absence. Notice what he does here. In the midst of this overwhelming pain, this overwhelming depression, he does something that makes all the difference in the world. He cries out to God. He cries out to Him. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. Verse 9, I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? And the verse we just looked at, why have you rejected me? Does that make you uncomfortable? It does me. Think about actually asking God that question, why have you rejected me? That sounds irreverent. That sounds like I don't believe. What's incredible about this psalm is that the psalmist takes his doubts and his questions outside of himself and he takes them to God. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. Why is that so important? Because in the midst of darkness and despair, that temptation, the temptation to turn inward, is overwhelming at times. This is what Ed Welch says in his book on depression. He says, everything turns inward 
in depression. It's more comfortable to keep it inside. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to voice this. When I, talk, when I voice it, it becomes more real than it was, right? Keep it to yourself. Keep quiet. God says, no. Bring it to me. Cry out to me. Ed has, Ed Welch, Ed, my buddy Ed. Uh, Welch has this great point. He points to Hosea chapter 7, where God is actually displeased with Israel because rather than calling out to him, they weep and cry to themselves. This is what, uh, this is what the word of God says about this. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. God wants to hear this from you. And although that seems irreverent, that seems like this isn't real faith, this seems like weak faith, it's actually the exact opposite. And that's how this comes to us in the psalm. The psalmist says, My God, my rock, why have you rejected me? It's because of what you said that I'm crying out to you. It's an act of faith to turn outward to God Himself. This is what faith looks like in the midst of darkness and depression. And the wonderful thing about this is that God is not interested in nor is He asking you to act like everything's okay. He doesn't want you to do that. He's not asking you to fake it. There's a gritty reality to the Bible and to the God of the Bible that doesn't ask you to deny the true brokenness of the world in which we live and the effects of sin in our lives. Cry out to Him in the midst of it. And so I I would call us to literally do that. And there are times though, and and I think Mother Teresa's uh, quotes get at some of this, where you feel like you don't even have the words for it. And I think another, this is another reason that the Psalms of Lament are crucial for us. In those moments where you have no words, God has given you words. You can literally open to Psalm 42 and pray verbatim what God has revealed here. The Psalms give us the language, the vocabulary for that suffering we wouldn't have otherwise. So turn to Him. Call out to Him in the midst of it. This is what faith looks like in the midst of God's seeming absence from us. So in darkness and despair, we cry out to Him as we recognize that our longing is for Him. But I want you to see this final move that the psalmist makes. So thirdly and finally, we must flee to the presence of God. And you see this mainly in uh, what's listed in our Bibles as Psalm 43, this last section. The, The tone changes a bit here. Things start to become a little more hopeful for us at this point because his longing for this whole psalm is to be with God in worship. He wants to get back to the temple. He wants to worship God. And notice what he does in 43.3. It's not possible for him seemingly at this point to get there. So what he does is he calls out to God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. I need to return to worship. I need your presence desperately right now. So the question then for us is, how do we do this? We don't live in the Old Testament where we need to go to the temple in order to experience God's special presence. What does it look like for you and for me to flee 
to God's presence in a way that's illustrated here for us by this psalm. I think there are two ways that that we could highlight. One is this. We flee to God by remembering. We flee to God by remembering. And you notice that the psalmist speaks about remembering a few times in here. Verse 4 of chapter 42, he says, These things I remember. And then verse 6, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. This is what Advent is all about. This season of the year is the time for us to ache and to long because we are waiting for God to make things right. We're in a parallel situation as to where Israel was in the Old Testament, waiting for Jesus, waiting for Messiah, and longing for things to be made right. Knowing that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but realizing that we must wait and hope for Jesus to come. And it's this season that helps us do this. So we're, we're to fight to remember what God has done. Here are a couple ways we can do this. One is to remember God's past actions. So you can think of this as looking back, remembering in the typical sense that we would talk about that. This is what the psalmist does. 42 verse 8. He's looking back to be reminded of who God is and what He's done. He says, By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. What's significant about this verse? If you notice, this is the only time in the whole of the psalm that God is referred to as Lord. Notice it's all caps in your Bible. This is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. This is God's covenantal name. And then right after that, It speaks of His steadfast love, which is also just dripping with covenantal overtones because that is God's covenantal love, His hesed. This is the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones translates what this covenantal love really means. She says this in the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The psalmist is looking back and saying, this is who God is. This is the promise. This is His love for me now. And that's what we've got to do in these circumstances. Look back. Remember God's covenantal commitment. How do we do that? Where do we look? What is the ultimate example and fulfillment of God's covenantal commitment? It's the cross. The cross is the place where you see God fulfilling all of His promises to us with absolute certainty that He could not be more committed to you, so much so that He would give His Son. He would send His Son into the world to suffer and to die. Remember God's past actions in the midst of your despair. But there's a second way to remember as well. And it's remembering God's future promises because while the cross is at the center and the focus of all of God's redemptive work, the full outworking of His redemptive work has not yet been fully experienced, right? Remember that God will come, that He will return, that He will complete His work. This is what the psalmist does as well. In the repeated refrain, he's saying, hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And what's really fascinating about this, you might have picked up on it, the psalmist is talking to himself. He's calling himself 
to remember this, to hope in God. He must remember this promise of God in the midst of his darkness. Why? Because you know what it's like to forget in those moments. Reality is clouded. Things don't seem right. Remind yourself of God's past actions and His future promises. This is what He calls us to. So we flee to God by remembering. Secondly, we flee to God by worshiping with God's people. This fits with what the psalm is all about here. Why would worship be so important? Lots of reasons. I'm going to give you two. One is that worship is where this great story of the gospel is rehearsed for us every week. You come in in darkness and despair and frustration and struggling to believe the gospel, and then we walk through the gospel together through this liturgy where we remind one another of what is actually true even when we don't feel it. And the beauty of this, and this is why in worship we're trying to provide some space for real confession and provide some space for psalms of lament, is that this is the place where we should be able to wrestle with God, with the, the, the conflicting feelings we have of how life looks and then how life should look, we say. This is the place to do it in the context of worship. And notice that in 43.4, the psalmist recognizes that the end of this, the end of worship, is exceeding joy. Now, not all tied up in a neat bow, Hallmark Christmas movie style, but God's presence with you as you walk through this pain and this sorrow. Joy that goes beyond this mere surface level experience of happiness. So worship is the place where we rehearse that story. Second reason, this is the place where Jesus draws near to us now. 43.3 Let them bring me to your holy hill. This is the place where they'd worship. And to your dwelling. That's the verbal form of tabernacle. Okay? Bring me to the place of your tabernacling. He wants to go to the temple because that's where God's presence is. Now, listen to what John says in chapter 1, verse 14. It has everything to do with Advent and with Christmas. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The exact same word could be translated. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus has come near. He is now God's temple. He is the place where God's special presence dwells. He is God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. That's what we celebrate this time of year. Is that He is the one who draws near to us. And the beautiful thing about this is that He is not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. This is the Jesus who guarantees that God will never leave you nor forsake you in the midst of your darkness. This is the God who will never reject you. Why? Because Jesus was rejected for you. Jesus was rejected in your place. He is the one who cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane, My soul is cast down. My soul is in turmoil. He's the one whose soul was troubled at his impending crucifixion because he would experience real abandonment from God. Not just perceived, actual abandonment, the father turning his face away from his son. This 
is the Jesus who now guarantees that that will never happen to you if you have put your faith in Him. He will never depart from you. This is all to ensure that you are His. He loves you in that way. He desires to be with you, and though it feels as though He's absent, He can never depart from you. Mother Teresa actually has hints of this in the midst of all of her darkness, her depression, and her sorrow. She says, this is just one sentence, she says, in spite of it all, I am His little one. In spite of it all, I am His little one. That is true of you this morning if you've put your faith in Jesus. No matter how distant He feels from you, He is with you. He is with you. Let me pray for us. Father, meet us in the midst of our doubts and our questions. We pray that we would turn to You and cry out to You when You feel distant. And we pray, Lord, that You would enable us to remember, that You would enable us to experience Your grace and Your kindness and Your favor to us. We pray this because You've promised to do this. We thank You that You answer this prayer. In the name of Christ, Amen.